welcome to the DDP podcast channel. We sincerely hope you will enjoy this episode. Don't forget to turn on your notification bell and to follow us right here on Spotify for more podcast episodes. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you might be joining us today. Thank you so much, and welcome back to DDP Podcasts. Uh, joining me today is Mr. Lukona Mgunyi, who is the Head Policy and Researcher at Rivonia Circle. And today we are discussing the road to the 2024 elections, and where are we now? Um, so much has happened um, since the last elections that we've had in the country, um, controversial ANC contestation for NECs, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is still happening, um, the Zondo Commission reports, which were released, corruption scandals, record-breaking load shedding, low voter turnout to the local government elections and possible talks of coalitions, and so much more. Uh, the South African uh, general election will be held in 2024 to elect a new national assembly as well as a provincial legislature in each province. And this will be the seventh election held under the conditions of universal adult suffrage since the end of the apartheid era in 1994. Um, Lukana, firstly, how are you doing? And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you could just describe your feelings uh, regarding the 2024 elections. Well, I'm doing well, and thank you for inviting me to participate in your podcast series at uh, DDP. I, I, I have a sense of impatience <laughs> with the 2024 elections. Uh, somewhat they appear too far, and uh, somewhat they appear too close. Too far in the sense that I do think that uh, people of South Africa are under a lot of strain and stress, and it would be best if they were to communicate their feelings to the politicians and the political establishment uh, through the vote sooner. Uh, but they appear too close because uh, I don't think that enough work has been done to organize people to develop a consensus, one, on what their priorities are. Secondly, what are the type of new politics that they want to see going forward? And thirdly, who are the individuals who must champion those new politics? That work needs a lot of horse trading. You know, it needs a lot of uh, conversations that are quite genuine, long and elaborate for people to find their points of connection and then arrive at some form of collective action. But I do think that it's a, it's an interesting and exciting election to look forward to. I have not seen an election spoken about so much two years before it occurs. That gives you a sense uh, that there's something shifting, whether it's shifting materially in the political landscape or in the political discourse and narrative in society. But there's definitely something shifting. And uh, so as, a, as a, someone who's been watching politics and watching elections now for um, almost 15 years, uh, it will be in 2024. I, I do think that uh, this election is going to present us with an exciting moment of reckoning. And of course, uh, the first election really since 1994, where there are material risks that the ANC could lose power. And that's a very, very important issue to deal with. And that's why 
some of us have been talking about a need to work on, on an intellectual project uh, that sort of looks at different scenarios in terms of uh, South Africa beyond the ANC. And um, it's almost been automatic, right, at every national and provincial election that the ANC will come back with a resounding majority. But its troubles now are such that uh, there are no guarantees anymore that it will come back. So 2024 uh, gets me excited, gets me worried, gets me anxious. Uh, but it's the it's the thing that keeps me going on the day to day these days. Um, I'm glad that you've mentioned that we are entering this new era of uh, possibly speaking about a new intellectual um, opinions and views of imagining life without the ANC. I mean, um, since the dawn of a South Africa's very young democracy, um, the ANC has been at the forefront of all of it. Um, riding on that. When it comes to the election system itself, um, and along with the fact that there's these possible new changes, which are very tangible um, in terms of our political system and our governing system and the people who are going to be in charge of it, um, are there any reforms that need to be considered? Um, any particular changes that need to be um, dealt with, um, also given with the context of the 2021 local government elections? Well, there are a lot of reforms that are needed and uh, have become quite necessary really in the last 28 years of our democracy. And the first, the first biggest problem, because you need reforms to respond to a problem. So you also need to define the problem quite clearly so that everybody understands the problem and then the need for the reforms. Uh, the first biggest problem is that the political system is not inherently accountable to the citizens of the country. So legislatively and otherwise, people are not imagined in the accountability framework of it. Local government tries to close this, but there are certain gaps there too, which I think some of us will communicate uh, to the Minister of COCTA as they are undertaking the local government review uh, currently. Now, local government says you must have your what committee, it defines what a what committee looks like and its composition, it must be multi-sectoral in terms of interests so that it can inform the councillor in that particular ward um, of certain projects that are necessary, but also hold the councillor and the municipality accountable across a, multiple, a multiplicity of issues. The, 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 the first foundational problem is that then the Municipal Structures Act tells you that the what committee must be chaired by the councillor. Now, um, that cripples the robustness that you need from that mechanism, because if the councillor does not call meetings, the what committee cannot sit. And if the councillor begins to feel that the what committee is antagonistic to them, uh, they tend to abandon, they deprive information to the what committee and so on. So you need to strengthen that. But you also need to bring it into the national sphere. Currently, the only obligation that executives have is to respond truthfully to questions posed to them by members of parliament in the National Assembly and in the National Council of Provinces. There's nothing that you and I can do to force a minister to give us a truthful response. There is no obligation that they have. There is no medium that is available for you and I to write to the minister and ask serious questions and receive serious responses that are credible and worthy. Instead, people like you and I, who are seen as outside of the system, the political system in its formality, 
uh, those who are seen outside that system, when they ask a lot of questions, you are almost called an agent of some force that uh, is operating, trying to undermine government, or you are seen as trying to be political without declaring that you are a politician. Uh, thirdly, you are seen as undermining the authority of those who govern. So we need to have a serious response to that problem of uh, citizens not being centered in the accountability framework of those who wield power. And so the electoral reforms that have been discussed um, uh, over the years, by the way, uh, the debate on electoral reforms is almost 20 years. Uh, for some people, it's even a little longer than that, but it has really been uh, put into the national discourse by the constitutional court judgment uh, of June 2020 that was calling uh, for the parliament to amend uh, the electoral act because it does not permit for independent candidates uh, to stand in national and provincial elections. Now, you can still respond to the constitutional court judgment without necessarily disrupting the nature of operation of the political system. And that's what the current amendment bill does. What the current amendment bill does is to say provinces are constituencies, and independents will compete against political parties in those constituencies. And if they meet quota X of seats, then they will be in the legislatures in provinces or in the National Assembly uh, in, 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 in Parliament. The problem with that is you still have a problem where citizens are dislocated in informing uh, the, the nature of uh, who governs and who becomes a public representative. And it is in this uh, regard that uh, some of us have been calling for a hybrid system where you've got about 300 seats in the National Assembly coming from constituencies. What that means is that people would vote for individuals who inherently reside in those communities, people they know, people they can vouch for, people whose track record they understand. And so if they decide to uh, elect into office a crook in the local community simply because maybe the crook is a benevolent crook and gives people food parcels and is nice and so on, then that's their own making. Unlike the current system where a political party at some place decides who is going to be the public representative. The, the agency of the people to decide is stripped away and almost uh, you know, uh, circumvented by that process. And that's why we call it a closed party list process. It's closed in the sense that nobody but the party has the final say on who is on that list. Nobody but the party has the final say on when to recall. Anyone who is on that list at any point in time, given the windows of opportunity that become available as per the IEC regulations. So the, 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 the big thing that needs to change in our political system is to ask, how do you make sure that citizens are at the center, one of influencing the political system and who becomes a representative, but secondly, of holding those in power accountable. And that's why part of the recommendations by uh, you know, some of us who really want to see a robust system, uh, we are calling for a recall clause that a constituency must signal dissatisfaction with a public representative if it so happens 
with the IEC by way of a petition. So you can say if 30% of the registered voters in a particular uh, constituency, uh, you know, petition the IEC for a by-election, uh, then the IEC must hold that by-election. But to absent mischief and a lot of instability in your representative bodies, you may say this can be done two years after the election, or exactly as what uh, the constitution says about the National Assembly, the National Assembly by its own resolution can be dissolved, but this must happen three, can, cannot happen before three years after the previous election. So you want to make sure that there's no instability, there's no, but you want to make sure also that citizens have a mechanism that they can utilize very seriously to withhold or, or to recall a person. In some jurisdictions, this is called a confidence vote. So you always go out at the midterm of an elected public rep and you, 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 you indicate whether you still have confidence or not. And if you don't, if, if the outcome is that majority of the voters no longer have confidence, then somebody else has to come into the fore. So we, we, need, we, we need to, we, those are the kind of reforms that give rise to what many fought for as people's power. There is no people's power currently in South Africa. There is power of a few political parties. And if you understand how political parties function, then there is power of a few people who are in national structures of those political parties. But if you drill down even further, there is a few who are in a faction that has the majority support in those national bodies, they actually decide. And those factions, you find that they are run by no more than 10 people in any political party. And this is a real uh, hijack of our democracy by political parties. And you need to undo it by a form of reforms uh, that one, define how people are elected, but secondly, define what powers citizens have to communicate their uh, dissatisfaction to those they have elected. Um, perhaps this is a, a controversial uh, question I'm about to ask right now, um, but do you think that this hijacking of power from the people uh, was done on purpose? Well, of course, it is on purpose. It is on purpose. It's self-serving. Uh, the, 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 the tighter you can have a hold on power without being accountable, the better because it allows you to do as much as you can without being accountable, without, uh, you, know, uh, you know, being forced to actually answer for what you have done. And it is exactly that hijacking of our democracy that has led to things that people are now worried about, such as state capture. I mean, in political science literature, this is written about as a one-party dominant system and its ills. And so it, it eventually leads you down this rabbit hole of misgovernance, corruption, malfeasance, maladministration, and really, a collapsing of the state because there are not enough checks and balances. The party self-governs, self-holds uh, accountable, uh, self-competes and all of that. And I think this is why 2024 for me is very, very exciting because for the first time we might actually uh, deal a heavy blow on the issue of one party dominance because it is not good. It does not sustain a healthy democracy. In effect, it 
malnourishes your democracy because you rely on the same people who are the majority in parliament to hold accountable an executive uh, to which they belong. And because of the power dynamics within the political parties, you find that the people who are ministers in cabinet, the president and deputy president, are senior officials in the political party. And therefore it is difficult for junior members of the political party in parliament to forcefully hold accountable senior members in the party because it has ramifications. It simply means that you may in the next conference not be considered to be part of the broader organizational leadership in terms of the National Executive Committee, but in the next election, you actually risk not making it back to the parliamentary list because you are the problem child, even though you are actually doing your job. The, the intersection between the party and the state is such that the party is used to settle scores that don't necessarily derive from within the party, the scores that derive from within the state. And because some people are trying to do their work, they eventually get stifled by the party. Now, this is a serious, this is a serious problem and, and, and it needs uh, to, to be dealt with. And that's why when you imagine reforms, they must also be to say, if there were to be another party that eventually over time builds its own credibility and becomes dominant, how would you ensure that there are enough checks and balances in the system uh, in such a way that they do not hijack the democracy? And part of that is, is just putting out a, a few things, making it compulsory to uh, publish certain information, uh, whether it's about the state, whether it's about intelligence, whether it's about this and that. I mean, there, there's so much information deprivation in South Africa. And uh, you find that uh, state actors will rely on the protection of uh, uh, the promotion of access to information act uh, uh, and they will frustrate you. So the information officer will refuse until you have to go to court. And now they know not everybody has the capacity to litigate because it's a very expensive, it's, a, it's an expensive task. And yet the information that they are withholding in some instances is, is, is information that should be publicly available. So we also need to redefine uh, the idea of you know, information availability so that there is greater accountability. The more information there is, the more eyes there are to watch that information, to look at the trends and implications of that information and inform a more better accountable system and network. And that will be part of bringing people back into the accountability framework, unlike currently um, as it is, where people must be at the mercy of what politicians disclose or don't, or wait uh, for those organizations with financial muscle uh, enough to litigate against the state in order for certain things to come to the fore. It shouldn't be that difficult. It really shouldn't be that difficult because the state is being run on behalf of its citizens. It's not a state being run on behalf of political parties. But political parties have managed to build a very worrisome narrative that one, they are indispensable, and two, they have the sole right to govern um, in terms of determining the nature of public life in South Africa. And this is why you'll find some people uh, making pejorative remarks about uh, civil society uh, organizations saying, oh, you want to rule from outside. If you want to govern, why don't you contest elections and simply go to parliament? Because there's a mis misunderstanding of the multifaceted 
uh, uh, you know, uh, entry points in democracy and how you can play an active political role without being elected to political office, but making sure that people understand issues such as how does the budget work? I mean, people who have been fighting for issues like gender budgeting, for example, and then they demonstrate to parliament and then they are told, no, 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 uh, this is the minister's work. Uh, where do you come in? Why do you want to hijack the process? It's not about that. It's about saying in a democracy, there must be multiple entry points because that's what gives us the checks and balances. And we don't all have to be elected to do political work in a democracy. But the narrative that they've built over time is really such that it almost, um, uh, it, it creates a sense of a blackout on other avenues of political participation. And it's deliberate, it's deliberate. It's meant to say there is no other power outside of formal political contestation. And those who are dominant and know the source of their dominance, it allows them to sort of, uh, lay, uh, you know, you know uh, probably make longer their lifespan in, in terms of, in, in terms of, in terms of uh, longevity in, as incumbents in office. But I think, uh, you know, there is a new uh, sense of development in society. Uh, people are no longer as naive as, uh, you know, previously thought. Uh, they are starting to ask questions. Uh, how do you use these multifaceted entry points of democracy to contest political power and ensure that uh, there's a much more robust political system? And we are starting to see it in different forms in local government where movements, so civic associations and the likes are contesting elections. It's not neat, it's messy in some instances, but the transition from any system uh, that was thought to be the norm into a new dispensation will always be faced with its own uh, you know, uh, pains and pangs, but uh, it does not say that people should not stop trying to contest that political power. Um, part of the conversation on uh, life beyond the ANC is that there is an inevitability of having to speak about coalition parties. Um, as a result of our multi-party system and just how many uh, uh, political parties exist in South Africa. Um, do you think that this coalition system would work on a national level? Um, and do you think that political parties would be willing to compromise with one another for the better good of the state instead of only worrying about the political party's agendas? Well, I've always, I've always argued, Yana, that uh, the, the right question to ask is, um, how do we develop a framework that would help us to make coalitions work? Because co coalitions are not uh, an outcome of their own. So they, they're not sitting in some you know, shelf at a shop and you shop a coalition and, and, and that's it. It's an outcome where voters have decided not to give a mandate to one single party. Now, other countries have had coalitions post-World War II in Europe. If you look at countries like Sweden and Denmark, uh, there probably has ever been one majority government, uh, one party that held a majority to form a government on its own, uh, probably once or twice uh, since World War II uh, to date. So coalitions, one, what we know is that coalitions can work. Uh, what we do need to ask is what are the conditions that allow for coalitions to work? 
we know that they can be messy and they change. I mean, look at Finland. That coalition keeps changing almost, uh, I mean, I think two years and then it, it reconfigures. One of the things that we need to get towards are politics that have a degree of consensus across the board. Politics that uh, one, want a stable South Africa, two, champion the constitution of the Republic, three, are people-centered. Then we can differ on how best to achieve those things. It's a very different formulation to disagreeing on whether the constitution is necessary or not. Uh, you know, uh, having disagreements about uh, whether the people should determine or the leaders should determine where political power stands. So there has to be a redefining or renegotiation of South Africa's social contract. And you need to do it as a formal process of legislation as well, that redefining the social contract so that everybody is duty bound to the redefined social contract. Because if we, are, we, if we don't agree on what the social contract is, then we will not have uh, you know, well-to-do coalitions because the stakes are not about the social contract, the stakes are about the personalities that are coming together to form those coalitions. And some of the work that we want to do at the Ravonia Circle is to trigger that conversation with parliament uh, to say, let us start a journey because we know some provinces, Gauteng definitely, KwaZulu-Natal maybe, and maybe a few other provinces will be under coalition governments come 2024. But how do we make sure that there are frameworks in place that allow us to do uh, you know, that renegotiation of the social contract so that everybody who signs up to a coalition is duty bound? For example, we are always told the coalition agreements uh, will be made public, but they never come. And some parties are in coalitions, but they've not signed and don't want to sign. So there's nothing actually we can hold accountable. Those who are in coalitions too, because we do not know what their terms of agreement are. We did not even know what their terms of engagement, what were, uh, what were they trading off about? We simply see, oh, there's a government it has been appointed. Is it doing well or not? Or there are a bit of difficulties and a stampede in some council meetings and so on. But what are the foundational things that people agree about before they come, uh, agree on before they come to that conclusion of forming a coalition. So for me, the biggest question is, what are the tasks that we need to do in order to make sure that coalitions work? Uh, because uh, you, can't you can't untangle yourself out of, out of a coalition outcome. So you might as well focus on making it work rather than focusing on what are the things that are making it not work. Um. One last question, are you running in the elections for 2024? Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next question I have is just, um, you know, elections are considered to be one of the highest valued um, forms of civic participation compared to any other form of civic participation. Um, and I just wanna ask you, do you think that this um, valuation and almost this uh, pedestal-like um, treatment of elections should change? Not at all, not at all. Um, I, 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 I really think that elections um, carry enormous power in them. They determine who will run government. And that government budget, there isn't a single entity in the country 
with a budget as big as that of the government. And so government, uh, we're just talking budget now, how much money, over a trillion rands every year at the disposal of government to dispense. That is in a five-year term, almost about six trillion rands. That's a lot of money and a lot of responsibility. Then there is the political power and responsibility that comes with being in government, defining the laws and legislation that give impetus to the constitutional rights that every citizen should enjoy. There is no other entity tasked with operationalizing the commitments that are in the constitution, which we view as our social contract, but we also view as our tool, as our transformation tool to achieve social justice in society. So all the other things that have been done by activists, by civil society groups, and you know the accountability work, the civic education work, the protests, uh, the, the marches and litigation and all of that, partly looks like a good form of political participation because they are actually trying to hold an, a government that is on a runaway train accountable or a runaway gravy train if you include the corruption. But the truth of the matter is that what is most necessary is a government that works, a government that can deliver the social infrastructure that is necessary for people to move and be mobile safely, conveniently, and with a degree of cheapness. A social infrastructure that sustains people's uh, cognitive development in the education system, a social infrastructure that sustains people's health so that they can have lifelong uh, you know, health outcomes, which then makes it better for them to generate their livelihoods, makes it better for them uh, to you know, uh, be productive citizens of the Republic. A government that sustains people's well-being and happiness. These are things that government is able to do with the range of power and policies at its disposal. Life could easily be difficult for, and it is becoming difficult simply because government is not taking the right decisions. No matter how aggrieved you are about the petrol price, the only institution that can remove the levy on the petrol is government. There's no other form of political participation that can do that. The only thing you can do is put pressure on government to do that and sustain it. But if government is not to the party, it's not going to happen. So the, the, the electoral politics, not only as participant voters, but as people who must also make sure that we avail ourselves to contest political power, to, to be nominated to political office, and to make sure that politics in South Africa attracts the best and most committed patriots to its governing bodies so that government can work for the people of South Africa. Not what is currently happening, where the best minds, the best skills, and the best expertise feel they are better outside of politics because politics is a dirty game, I don't belong there, and so on. We need to encourage people to come back to politics, not just as voters. I know we talk a lot about voter turnout as our worry. My worry is that people like you and I are not motivated 
to get back into politics and participate and seek to stand for public office. And this is why uh, some of these reforms, electoral reforms are important because it may encourage a number of people if we have a constituency a, a sort of election and independence can stand that they would then participate and avail themselves for office. But we really, really need to say political power insofar as it leads to forming a government is one of the most important powers and it must be contested by the best among ourselves. Well, you heard it right here, everybody. You have to go out and vote in 2024. Um, Thank you so much, Lukona, for joining us today. Uh, speaking of uh, voting, uh, DDP will be hosting its civic education conference um, on the 27th of July, in which we will actually be speaking about the elections and the importance of the elections and the role that election observers play um, in the upcoming 2024 elections and the possible reforms that perhaps have to be attached towards that. Details regarding that will be posted in the description of this podcast. Um, but otherwise, thank you so much, Lukona, once more. Um, it was a very insightful conversation. I wish we could speak for, for much longer. Um, but I'm pretty certain that we'll probably bring you back for some more insights from you. Thank you. Well, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out our social media pages at DDP underscore democracy to engage with more of our content. Or you can head on over to our website at ddp.org.za to keep up with any events that we might have planned for you. Thank you once again for joining us.